Once more under the breach, dear friends, once more. Welcome to the Sing Your War Song podcast. My name is Mikey, your humble host, your common theologian, your fellow Christian layman, your regular dude. And today, my friends, we are wrapping up our foundational series on worldview. We answer the final subsidiary philosophical question, and we will be in a place to further articulate our position as Christians who see the world through the proper lens, the interpretive lens that sees the world as it is, for our gracious Lord has revealed it so. I'm stoked to be here. I'm stoked for you who are listening as we finalize these things and bring them all together. We're answering that last question of the four, and we're going to bring it all together to answer the pivotal questions of the cosmos and man. And then we can proceed forward to answer that question, how then shall we live? So stay with me, guys. If you want to support us here, give us the old five-star review on iTunes and Spotify. Follow us on Instagram at sing underscore your underscore war song and share this bad boy with all your friends. So today, my friends, we are discussing the philosophical question of teleology, which essentially asks the question, to what end? We're asking the question of destiny, of purpose. What are we working towards? Is there an authority governing the timeline of history and working towards an end? What is our place in that end as individuals? These are the questions of the telos. But before we begin, let's, let's clarify some things. So in our previous study of ontology, which if you remember is the question of being, I, I inadvertently crossed over into the sphere of the telos. Now, I've said this time and time again in pretty much every episode, but none of these questions can be answered in a vacuum. They all work together, right? All these philosophical questions work together to form a framework. They lay the groundwork for the others to form this comprehensive view of the world. So as ontology is the nature of being and teleology the study of purpose, they in essence have a cause and effect relationship. Our ontology is the cause and the telos, the effect of that cause. So naturally, in our previous episode discussing being, I got, I got a little excited and I dove into purpose a good bit. I couldn't help it. But as we were discussing our being, it was only natural that we discuss where our nature of being points us, right? The essence of of who we are, of our being, the direction we're going is, is part of that. So I couldn't help it, but... We see that our being is our design and and our purpose is the direction of that design. So for this episode, we're going to focus on that direction. But undoubtedly, we will reemphasize where we came from, our being and its nature. 
We do this so that we understand in context our purpose and direction. We must know where we have come from to fully realize where we are going. We must know what we are fighting towards. In the motion picture, The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, Frodo and Sam come to a hard decision point at the end of the movie. The enemy gains ground. The Black Riders relentlessly seek Frodo in the ring, and it seems as if there is no one they can trust as the ring corrupts the noblest of hearts. It is in this moment that Samwise the Brave reveals his resolute character. I can't do this, Sam, said Frodo. Sam responds, I know, it's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here, but we are. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end, because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you, that meant something, even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now. Folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't. They kept going because they were holding on to something. Frodo says, what are we holding on to, Sam? Sam responds, that there's some good in this world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. In this powerful moment of storytelling, Sam reveals to us something vital that directly translates to our reality. In this story that we are in, the dominion of darkness wages its war. In this conflict, the tides of history roll and the ruthless and vile fruits of darkness seem to run rampant as it appears the light of life is on the precipice of waning into nothingness. But it is in these moments that those who are of the light cling to a hope that anchors them and keeps them in a posture of relentless pursuit. They cling to the hope that every circumstance, no matter how mundane or horrific or seemingly vain, has meaning and value because it is part of a story being woven together by an author who is sovereign, who is true, and who is beautiful. Those of the light relentlessly pursue their purpose because they cling to the hope that it is worth fighting for. The great author has decreed it is so. This, my friends, is the study of the telos, of destiny, of purpose, of the end. In our study of what it means to be, we firmly established that in order to understand our existence, we must understand that our existence is a story 
written by a sovereign God. And it is his story. We are characters, characters made in his image with value according to his purpose, whom he loves according to the free exercise of his sovereign will. But he, the author, is the main character of this story. This story is moving in a direction. This direction is the study of the telos. If we look to how this Greek word telos is used in scripture, it is translated time and time again to mean the end. From Strong's Concordance, telos comes from a primary term, telo, which is, quote, to set out for a definite point or goal, unquote. Telos properly is the point aimed at as a limit. It is the conclusion of an act. John Thayer's lexicon provides an in-depth documentation of the usage of this word in ancient Greek, but its usage within almost every context refers to the end. Where we connect this broad usage with our discussion today is where Thayer connects telos with its usage in philosophy and specifically its usage in 1 Timothy 1.5. Thayer defines it here as, quote, the end to which all things relate, the aim, purpose, unquote. Let us read Paul's epistle to Timothy in context, starting at verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. In verse 5, telos is translated as aim or goal. Paul is directing Timothy to charge others to hold fast to the sound teachings of biblical doctrine. He is charging that they must hold to the truth lest they fall into vain and empty ideologies that fall short of true wisdom and understanding. The aim of this charge, its goal, its end, is love. Paul is charging they hold fast to the truth that they purpose themselves towards the proper end, which is love, from a pure heart and sincere faith. We see here, the telos is that which everything is moving towards. The purpose for which we are moving towards and the nature of that purpose. If we do not have a telos, we are aimlessly moving forward. The teleology of a worldview provides the framework of the worldview's direction. It answers the question of universal destiny of all existence as well as the destiny of humanity and its individual members. From Dr. Martin, quote, With respect to the fourth and final philosophical question, the question of destiny, we ask the question, where, if anywhere, are we going? 
Most views of God, man, and the cosmos are teleological, holding that there is definite direction or design to time. It is believed that time or history is going somewhere, moving towards some object or objective. Most views hold that there is meaning to the flow of history, and most anticipate, ultimately, perfection. Unquote. Martin identifies the fact that there are numerous possibilities, but relatively few categories when analyzed. He highlights two of the most important, which are the kingdom of God, teleolo- <laughs> this word, teleolo- teleology, in contrast to a kingdom of earth, teleology. I got it the second time. The kingdom of God, telos, is the view that God is, is in sovereign control, and he controls and determines the direction of time and history. In contrast, quote, the other teleological possibility holds the view that some yet-to-be-discovered non-supernatural force, power, or agency is in ultimate control, and it's determinative of direction in time, what is here being called in a generalized sense, a kingdom of earth teleology. Many, if not most, kingdom of earth teleologies also hold that there is direction in time and that history will ultimately, by some means, usher in perfection. Unquote. The point to be made here, guys, is that any coherent view of our world and thus paradigm that governs our institutions, must be striving for something. It must have some nature of progress that is moving toward a specific end. This is from G.K. Chesterton. Quote, Nobody has any business to use the word progress unless he has a definite creed and a cast-iron code of morals. Nobody can be progressive without being doctrinal. I might also say that nobody can be progressive without being infallible, at any rate, without believing in some infallibility. For progress by its very nature indicates a direction, and the moment we are in the least doubtful about the direction, we become in the same degree doubtful about the progress. Unquote. G.K. makes the point beautifully. If one does not have a dogma, a defined creed that outlines what he holds to be good and true and right, then he truly cannot define where he is going or what he wants to move towards. And that thing we are moving towards, it is something that from our perspective, in some sense, is the idea of infallibility or perfection. If our creed does not charge or aim us towards something that is far better, then what is the point of progress? I mean, we see this in many doctrines, even godless ideologies. The Marxist theory of history charges that the dialectical process will ultimately flower into a utopian society at the end. There is nothing we can do to stop it. It is the inevitable purpose of history. We see the many workings of this today, as those who are in power clearly hold to the dialectical theory of synthesizing conflicts into an exponential progression that will burst into this so-called utopia. And we are here as witnesses of this poisonous fruit. 
the steady and committed destruction of what is truly beautiful, the defiling of all that makes us human, the value and dignity we, we possess as individuals, the liberty that is ordained by our Creator, the ability to personally pursue our purpose, all destroyed by the lifeless machine that is the dialectical process being wielded by the will of tyrants. Alas, we have hope, for we are here to properly define the true workings of existence, and we know without wavering that God's kingdom determines the direction of history and time. The sovereign Lord determines to what end we are aiming towards. So despite the current workings of darkness, we can know all these things are working towards a beautiful purpose established by the king of this kingdom. Now it's here. I got to be honest about my perspective and understanding in relation to the church at large. When the followers of Christ start talking about the end, we, we tend to get really passionate about our differences according to the hermeneutical method we hold to. Hermeneutics is the method by which we interpret, the framework we use to properly expound upon the biblical text. As followers of Christ, we use Scripture to properly expound upon Scripture. We form a framework according to Scripture that helps us better understand what it is saying universally as well as the particular portions found within it. This framework will inform how we also interpret the end we are moving towards. So for some of us, we hold to covenant theology, to others dispensationalism, and these have obvious effects of how we interpret history and especially the end of all time. Now, this is not going to be a podcast arguing for one or the other. I'm but a common theologian. There are far greater men than me, by the grace of God, who can really articulate these things well from their positions. But like I said, I got to be honest and upfront about mine. And this has all only become clear to me recently in the past couple of years as I have pursued God on a much deeper level. Consequently, I have come to believe that I am led by the Spirit and convicted by my conscience, according to that leading, to hold to a covenant theology and a post-millennial view of the eschaton. Now, this comes from a man all right, who goes to a church that preaches dispensationalism. My closest brothers and sisters in the faith are dispensationalists, but this is the position I must hold according to how I am led. Now, our differences are important, and there is much to discuss within the church as we pursue God together. But there is much we can be united on as Christians who hold to the foundational doctrines of Christian orthodoxy. What we can all agree on, I say as Christians, we must agree on, lest we be heretics, is that God is sovereign and is ruler over all. 
and thus he moves time and history towards the end that he wills. There is no other outside force. There is no transcendent form of chance that makes itself ruler over all that was before God. The triune God is the sovereign of the universe. So let's look to scripture, friends, for our vindication. This is going to be a scripture-rich episode. But that is where we go to. It is the final authority, as we say. From Psalm 145, verses 8 through 13. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power, to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures throughout all generations. Here's from Psalm 103 verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. From Psalm 47 verse 2. For the Lord the Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. <laughs> We're going to use that, that, that three-letter word a lot during this episode. Because it's in Scripture a lot. God is king over all. His kingdom is everlasting, and his dominion endures. We see more clearly this kingly reign it has been real, revealed to us in the coming of Christ. It is revealed according to the decree of God's redemptive plan that King Jesus presides over this kingdom. From Luke's Gospel. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, <laughs> there will be no end. Oh man, that fires me up. Jesus will be established on the throne as he fulfills the prophetic call of David's throne. From this position, he will establish a new way according to his redemptive work, and he will continue from this position on David's throne to conquer the nations and take them as his inherited possession. From the book of Revelation, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He is ruler of the kings on earth. He took his position as the messianic fulfillment of Israel's everlasting king, and he changed the nature of Israel, and he made a new way and formed Christian Israel, 
This new Israel are the saints of God. And he makes them all priests within God's kingdom. Christ is ruling and reigning now with the purpose of placing all under submission of his kingdom. The story of history is the story of God executing his plan of conquest. Isaiah speaks of King Jesus and prophetically proclaims of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. There will be no end to the increase of his government. His zeal shall accomplish that which he has purposed. This is from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 23 through 28. It's Paul speaking of the resurrection. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Christ must reign until every enemy is placed under his feet, and the last shall be death. Our warrior king, Jesus Christ, is ruling now, presiding over the nations now, enacting his will over the course of time and space, moving towards an end where all his enemies will be destroyed. To what end is God working towards? What is the point? It is his glory revealed through victory. His glory revealed through the triumph of love and goodness and beauty. His glory revealed through Christ's kingly reign. We are characters in this story of triumph. God is the author. He is the main character. And he is writing his story. That is the nature of our being. We are creatures willed into existence by a sovereign God who shall share his glory with no other. Our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is humanity's purpose in this story. This story is working towards an end. It is aimed towards a purpose that has a definitive goal. In this story, the author has woven into it a people he calls his beloved a people he fights for, a people he dies for, that they shall share 
in his love and be enveloped by his glory and beauty forever. He redeems. He redeems that they fulfill their purpose of glorifying God and enjoying him forever. Christ our King is purposing the salvation of his people who shall inherit his kingdom and rule with him as adopted sons and daughters along the historical timeline. Right? This is happening along that timeline of history. From Paul's letter to Titus, we read the following. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. In Christ, by the Spirit, his saving work is bestowed upon a people he has chosen throughout the historical process. The Spirit is moving throughout the generations, amongst creation, amongst time and space. The eternal Spirit is regenerating the hearts of God's chosen according to the saving work of Christ that occurred within history. At that specific time, when the God-man dwelt with us and liberated us from captivity. And now these people, God's people, hold fast according to grace, being trained in all righteousness, conducting the warfare God has ordained and purposed them to fulfill as they further Christ's conquest within their generation. They do it knowing it has meaning. Because the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will appear. The one who gave himself for us. A people for his own possession. But let us be clear. Christ is the focus. The triune God is authoring a story that has at its end his own glory. Christ is the main character who saves a people who will consequently give him that glory in a world without end. From the book of Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, 
to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Christ is uniting all things to himself, and the telos is the progression of his will being accomplished. According to his will, he predestined a people that would be saved by his work to the praise of his glory. Greg Nichols warns us in his work, Covenant Theology, quote, We risk giving the impression that man is the ultimate end of God's redemptive work. Scripture clearly reveals that God himself, especially the praise of his glorious grace, is the ultimate end of salvation, unquote. Paul's epistle to the Ephesians emphasized this when it stated we are adopted according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. This is so foreign to our self-centered worldview of today. Our current paradigm says that we must be the main characters of our own stories, you see. The universe is what it is according to our own subjective perspective, and we define our own direction to our own praise. Most scoff at God and would accuse this God of the Bible of being vain, prideful, and arrogant. We destroyed this argument in previous episodes, but we will quickly make the point again. God has every right to make everything to his glory because he is in fact God. He is the most high. He is of the highest value. He alone is worthy of this glory. We fulfill our created purpose when we are in a right position to give him the glory to his name. And none of us are in a right position unless we are saved by the grace of God, unless we repent and believe in Christ's saving work. We experience true joy peace, love, goodness, and beauty when we exercise worship and express our Lord as the highest value. The telos of history is the progression of worship, the conquering of nations that will in turn worship until Christ has conquered every enemy, until everything is united to him at the final consummation, and so all things will worship him and give him glory forever and ever. Praise be to God. Now, the destiny of the cosmos is universally applied across all of creation. Everything is moving towards this end decreed by God. Consequently, it is particularly applied across the covenant community of believers, and more specifically, 
the individual lives of believers. Our Lord once again reveals to us the true answer to the great philosophical question of the one and the many, of the universal and the particular. He reveals to us that they have equal weight. One is not more valuable than the other. The triune God is the one true God, and he is three persons, co-equal in value of one essence. The universal character of God, he being one, is just as pivotal and valuable as he is three distinct persons. And so God's universal purpose of the cosmos is just as valuable as his purpose for the particular creatures within the cosmos. The Lord Jesus Christ is Lord over all things, and he is moving all things towards final conquest. The Lord Jesus Christ loved his people and gave himself for each particular creature. He numbers the hairs on their head. The Holy Spirit fulfilling the conquest as he regenerates the hearts of each individual member. Each individual member makes up the covenant community. And through this community, the Lord Jesus Christ vanquishes his foes. Through the fulfillment of the Great Commission, the discipling of the nations. The universal telos is what gives our individual journey meaning. And our individual journey is a particular part of the universal telos. And without the particular parts, that, that universal end we're moving towards wouldn't have meaning. They both have equal weight and value. And we see this at work time and time again in Scripture. But we're going to look at Colossians chapter 1 as an example. Here Paul speaks of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Paul is speaking to the covenant community in Colossae, he firmly establishes the sovereign reign of Christ as it, it is by him all things were formed into being. They were created through him and for him. He holds all things together. He is the head of the body, his church, his special people that he has saved. 
He has reconciled each individual member and has given their individual walk value as they continue in faith and remain steadfast in the hope of the gospel. Excuse me, getting a little drink here. Now let us look at the scriptural basis of progress in the individual lives of those God has called and chosen. We're going to connect the individual walk of each believer with the idea of the telos. Our ontology reveals that we are totally depraved and in need of our Savior. That is the nature of our being since the fall of man. God has revealed that Christ is saving his people. Now, to what end is he saving us? What is the purpose of our salvation? He is restoring us to our created state. To do what? To glorify him and enjoy him forever. How are we to glorify him and enjoy him? To obey his commands, to worship him by taking dominion to his glory, and to increase from glory unto glory within ourselves and throughout creation. This is all to the glory and praise of the main character of this story that is being written. Let us tell this story with some scripture. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That's from 2 Corinthians. So as we see, our lives are a transforming process from one degree of glory to another. In the Spirit, in freedom. Freedom from what? Freedom from the sin that enslaved us, that chained us, that made us incapable of increasing in anything that was good because we were totally depraved by this sinful state. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. But this spirit freed us, regenerating our hearts from spiritual death. And now we, our individual lives, are our telos, our aim, our, our purpose that we're moving towards is this increase, this transformation from one degree of glory to another. Furthermore, in 2 Corinthians, in the next chapter, Paul says, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So as the Bible says, we are to fix our eyes upon Jesus, our King, the author and finisher of our faith. And by grace, our outer self our corrupted flesh, our sinful desires are all wasting away as our inner self is being renewed day by day, transformed. 
And though we undergo this, this process, it is conflict, it is strife, there's momentary affliction, but it's preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That is the aim we work towards. From Colossians, Paul says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. (laughs) So as Christ... The universal aspect of his telos, he is uniting all things to himself. He is restoring creation through the conquering work of his of his saving work at the cross and resurrection. He is at the right hand of the Father now, and the Holy Spirit is moving through, re- regenerating the hearts of each individual member. And we are... Our individual transformations are part of Christ's restoring work of all creation as we put off the old self with all its sin, living day by day, putting on the new self, being renewed in the knowledge after the image of our creator. He further says, so then brothers, we are debtors. This is from Romans 8. We are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. In this transformative process, we are led by God himself, the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit who regenerated our hearts, made us new creations, and now He is leading us through this process of transformation, which is living to Him and not according to the flesh. He, in the daily process of life, is fulfilling Christ's saving work by putting to death the deeds of the body as we walk in Him as soldiers fighting the good fight of faith, knowing that we are adopted sons according to what Christ has done for us. And now we have a place where we can approach our Father, and we are heirs, heirs with Christ. We're finishing this, we're writing this story, you see, with all the scripture, we're piecing it together to see to see the telos worked out in our individual lives. And and God has has revealed that, as we said, you know, the question of the one and the many, there's this overarching story of redemption. And our individual lives are a part of that. Hold as much weight as that. Because that is how, how Christ has decreed it so.
So let's finish with Ephesians. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. For above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. We are all being sanctified by the inner working of Christ's salvation through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. We are walking in him, being led by him, and in his power we are being progressed. We are working towards the end that is glory. The same power that is placing all of Christ's enemies under his feet is the same power that is sanctifying us, renewing us day by day according to his righteousness. So what are we to do? We are to press on. From Philippians, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. When we are saved, when our hearts are regenerated and brought to life from death in the presence of the Spirit, we are new creations but not perfected. Christ is fulfilling his perfect work in history, and so he is working within our lives our lives that are aimed towards glory. And so we press on, obtaining that prize by submitting unto Christ and putting our faith in him. Jesus said, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? And it is here Christ reveals to us the value, the individual value he has placed upon each of us who are his that he died for. And the uniting fulfillment of his telos involves each individual member that he loved so dearly and gave himself for. So he says, deny yourself, submit unto him, and be transformed more into his likeness that you would gain something far greater than this current world could offer. This is the work 
of the telos. This is what we are striving for, pressing on in. Losing our lives for the sake of the gospel and for our souls. Knowing that in Christ, we can proceed forward in this process. For him, by him, through him, to his glory. And in this we fulfill our purpose. This is all very specific to God's people, though. The ones that he is saving. But we know in this story within the the overarching redemptive plan, there is the reprobate, the one ultimately that will not be saved. And what of this reprobate? What of those, what of those that God is not saved according to his will? What of those who remain in rebellion? Who exercise their will that is in rebellion against God? Even these are a part of God's story, and God is working towards an end that will glorify him. And even these are a part of the telos. Here's Psalm 106, verses 6 through 12. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in England, did not... (laughs) In England... (laughs) In Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea, at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry, and he led them through the deepest through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words. They sang his praise. God used the reprobate army of Egypt, not England, as a tool that would ultimately bring him glory. For his name's sake, he saved his people from their hands as he parted the Red Sea and destroyed Pharaoh's army with the falling waters. God's people turned from rebellion to praise. He made known his mighty power and his people worshiped him and gave him the glory due his name. Those who were hardened of heart, he used for good according to his glorious purpose. The telos, the cosmos. To make this point clear, we will cite one of the most difficult portions of scripture at least one of the most difficult for Christians to to submit to. (laughs) This is the infamous Romans 9. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? 
Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? It's a tough one, but let's go. God's will is sovereign, and he decrees whatsoever comes to pass. And according to his decree, there are creatures who are vessels of wrath used to make known the riches of God's glory towards those he has chosen to enjoy him forever. All things, even Satan himself, are working towards the telos that has God's glory as its end. So some will bring up the same argument that is brought up in Romans 9. You know, essentially, how does God find fault? What is the point if God has decreed everything? And we tackled this in our podcast on being. But let's revisit this because, I mean, it's vital. According to the ontology of our reality, we know that God's ways are higher than ours. We know that we have a sovereign creator and we are created beings. We know that there are things revealed to us in scripture, so we know them to be true. That may appear to be contradictions because we cannot fully harmonize them from our fallible and finite perspectives. But we know these seemingly contradictory truths. We know them to be harmonizing truths because they are concrete and clearly stated in Scripture. God harmonizes them in those higher places that we do not see, those secret places. So we know that God is sovereign. And he decrees whatsoever comes to pass. And we also know that man is responsible because God has given man a will and he commands man to exercise that will and obey the commands of God. Right? Two truths that appear to contradict, but both are concretely evident in Scripture. And though we cannot fully harmonize those two truths from our perspectives, we trust God who is higher as he reveals them in scripture. So God saves those he has chosen, but he does it through the general call of the gospel and his saving grace is revealed when a man repents and believes. This is the effectual outcome of the gospel saving work. We call to the lost. We preach the unbelieving. We appeal to them with genuine love and desire to see them saved. And we do so knowing it has value and meaning because God will fulfill his purpose. God's sovereignty is the only reason anything has meaning. If chance is true, then chance is God and nothing has meaning. We are working towards a unified end. If chance is God, We are working towards no end, but are lost to meaningless chaos. So God's covenant people have an aim, a purpose, a mission, according to the telos. 
But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. That's from 1 Peter. We are products of the telos. We are part of We take part of this glorious purpose as we are gathered along the timeline of history. We continue the telos by preaching the gospel to all nations and teaching them to obey Jesus as outlined by the Great Commission. Jesus says of this gospel, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Jesus further proclaims to us that he will bestow upon us the glorious fruits of the telos. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. The Lord makes it clear that we are conquering in his name. We are conquering through his name and by his power, and he will give us authority over the nations that are further discipled. And as the Lord is saving and sanctifying the particular members, he is restoring and sanctifying the cosmos as a whole. The parables of Christ teach us that the kingdom is like leaven that spreads until the entire measure of flour is leavened. He reveals the kingdom is like a mustard seed, one of the smallest, but then it grows to be larger than all the garden plants until it becomes a tree. The parable of the weeds reveals that the sons of the evil one will be gathered and removed and the righteous will remain and shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. The telos of the cosmos is one of God patiently enduring the wicked as he places all his enemies under his feet. The purpose is one of Christ conquering along history's trajectory and his gospel being successful as it covers the entire earth. And just as we grow and are sanctified until we conquer death and pass into glorious perfection, so creation is being sanctified until it will pass into perfection at the final consummation. And so we say, as Paul says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The triune God is working everything towards the end that he has sovereignly decreed, and so we have hope. We have hope that our life has meaning because it is a part of a story that is working towards a unified end, a glorious end, 
an end in which we are conquerors through Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. We have hoped that nothing in this story can separate us from the love of God, for the main character of this story, the God of the universe, became a man and suffered the wages of his creature's rebellion that his glorious grace could be made known through his power and deliverance. We have hope, because this is not a story being written by a distant sky daddy who tugs on the cords of lifeless caricatures, but he who is self-contained and eternal became flesh and dwelt amongst his creation, freeing it from evil by bearing real pain and suffering for the sake of those that he loves. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Psalm 103. We may feel like our lives are but a breath when we contemplate the immense timeline of history and the immensity of the cosmos. And in some ways, it is true. Our individual lives in this physical realm flourish like a seasonal flower and quickly pass away. And this may cause despair for those who are lost. But for the blood-washed servants of Christ, we do not lose heart. For within the immeasurable expanse of time and space, we are assured that our hairs are numbered and our lives are a part of the story. We know our lives have value. For the Creator revealed it when He was willing to suffer immeasurable pain for His people. That we could glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. Our hope is sure that every minute aspect of our lives has meaning and value because these particulars are part of the unified telos. You see, the current telos of the powers and authorities of this age produce nothing but the fruits of despair and hopelessness. The rulers of this age preach autonomy. They preach subjective absolutism, if there even is such a thing, and celebrate the presupposition that the individual can define their own truth, their own values, their own aim that works to their own end. And the peoples of this age have vainly reached out from self, searching for their own meaning, their own purpose, working tirelessly in this endeavor to form their own reality as they castrate their sons and mutilate their daughters and sacrifice their children to this great God of the self. This has produced great swaths of society that have searched and searched and found the only result of this nihilistic hedonism. Despair. Men are deleting themselves at astronomical numbers. More and more are falling into filth, violence, death, nothingness. They are bearing the fruit of this anti-reality scheme. The dominion of darkness celebrates. Its priests, prophets, and kings that govern our institutions take great joy in this endeavor, for they have formed what they see as their end, their telos, a powerless, weak, moldable society of individuals that stand ready to bend the collective knee to the schemes 
of the totalitarian. They have formed a spineless, malleable population that will voluntarily shackle themselves to the telos of the dialectical process of history, an authoritarian utopia. <laughs> but despite all this, we have hope, for Christ reigns, you see, and his kingdom is without end, and he is in the process of conquering. We have hope, because even in this he shall use these reprobates to display his power and glory, as Paul boldly declares, as he is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We are being glorified day by day through the fires of conflict and strife. Each moment of conflict bears meaning, for Christ is working all for our good. And so we press on, having hope for our children and the generations that follow, optimistically raising our children in the Lord, trusting Christ would continue his conquering work through them. And so we press on, even as we face the last great giant of the age, the great champion of darkness, death himself. We press on for we have hope that death is but a giant that is to be conquered in the power of Christ. Christ declared his victory, his sovereignty over all things, including death. And King Jesus shall even use him for the good of those he loves. From 1 Corinthians, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Our labor is not in vain, for Christ is victorious. Our labor is not in vain, for he is risen. Our work, our life, no matter its length or achievements, has meaning, for Christ has called us to this glorious purpose. And our death, no matter the circumstance, has meaning, for through it Christ shall further display his glorious grace. Even our failures, our sins, our shortcomings, they have meaning. 
For even in this, God, who is rich in mercy, uses these moments to further refine us through repentance and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. We learn, we grow, we press on, knowing Christ our King moves us towards His glorious end, a world without end. And He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Christ is our telos. He is our all in all. All things are working towards him, for him, and by him. To Christ be the glory.